0: Welcome to the Green Majority. Thank you very much for listening. We are out of Toronto in CIUT 89.5 FM, and we appreciate you if you are syndicating us elsewhere as well. We are David Hostetter, Stefan Hostetter, and Lauren Latour. After our mad climate news and climate studies from around the world, and a look at Justin Trudeau versus Mr. Joe Biden, our New York correspondent, Amir Jandali, is going to interview Cambrian Carbon about wood. And uh, just, uh, there are a lot of people. Saying stuff, a lot of people talking these days, and we're just trying to say something that makes a little bit of sense. There's
1: three white people who think you need to hear their voices too.
0: Yeah, three more white folks who thought they'd say a thing or two. Speaking of which, Lauren, you wanted to say something about that documentary you never watched.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This week I've been thinking about that documentary that... Uh, people are talking about online. Seaspiracy, uh, it premiered on Netflix. Like David said, I haven't actually watched it yet. And I fully have no intention of watching it. Um, what I mostly wanted to bring up is is just how is just how interesting it is in cases like this, when you've got documentaries like Seaspiracy or Cowspiracy when it came out or, or others like it, where um, there's definitely something positive in the discourse it drums up in the sense that those films do tend to do a good job of putting a bit of a different spin on the climate crisis, helping people understand it from a different perspective. Um, maybe, maybe that perspective is a little more systemic as opposed to just um, focusing on things like light bulbs and electric vehicles and stuff like that. Um, but unfortunately, Seaspiracy is, is another one of those ones that, um, although it does broaden the conversation, it also paradoxically narrows it as well and focuses it entirely around veganism and posits veganism as the only solution which we've talked about on this show before. And as, as most of our listeners know, isn't the only or even the best solution Um, because what tends to happen when we put forward veganism as the only or the best solution to greenhouse gas emissions, what we're doing is, is, is effectively, um, we're alienating and we're targeting and we're further oppressing a lot of populations around the world. In this case, these are coastal populations who rely on animal protein as a a main source of sustenance. So when a movie like Seaspiracy attacks the fishing industry, that's not inherently a bad thing. There's a lot of critique that needs to be lobbed at the fishing industry and, and things that need to change in order to increase the health of our marine ecosystems, not only by uh, supporting animal life populations, but also by making sure that we're not having like mass quantities of plastic waste being dumped into oceans, not to mention the emissions from, from, from the ships. Um, but in saying that people need to go vegan as a solution in order to, uh, to sort of increase the health of marine ecosystems, what we're saying is those communities who rely on marine proteins, for sustenance. Um, we're saying they're bad. We're saying they're wrong. We're saying we're, we're othering them in doing that. And that isn't a positive thing because oftentimes these communities, it's like, it's like they're reliant on that. So it's a really, it's a privileged position and it demonizes. Uh, communities in the global south and that's never a positive way to approach conversations related to climate change and related to conservation because we do know that conversations around conservation have been so um toxic and white supremacist in the past so if if you've seen conspiracy and you feel like it's converted you um by no means is that necessarily a bad thing but but you know maybe maybe give give some of those perspectives and some of those ideas a bit of a second thought and um, maybe try to consider things through a bit of, a, of a, an anti-white supremacy, anti-colonial lens when you're maybe having conversations with friends or having conversations with yourself about the merits of veganism as a solution for climate action.
2: Stop being jerks to people who are just trying to make the world a better place. The person who's dedicated their entire life to trying to help the oceans is not the villain in the ocean story. There are hundreds of other villains you can come at, like the fossil fuel industry, which is slowly causing enough carbon, as we'll hear in a second, to turn our oceans into acid. So maybe just widen your range of critiques and don't just attack the underpaid people who are just trying to do their little bit.
1: Yeah. If you have a problem with someone's praxis or theory, maybe have that conversation internally, unless they're doing something really damaging and they need to be called out publicly. But but in this case, yes, I agree. I don't think these organizations and the individuals working for these organizations need to be called out. Um, But again, I haven't actually seen this documentary. So if people have thoughts for me and want to prove me wrong, by all means, feel free to engage with us uh, via email or social media. That invitation is always out there just as long as you're Kind about your disagreements. But um, anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. What about you,
2: Stefan? 350.org Canada has launched a campaign trying to convince uh, the Greens, uh, the Green Party, and the NDP to form a one time climate emergency alliance. Uh, this would mean that they wouldn't run candidates against each other and would encourage their supporters to support each other in the writings where they're not running a candidate. Uh, the reason why is a uh, we have you know Canada is severely lacking on climate ambition, but also b that studies have shown that 93% of respondents in this case they are mostly Greens, NDP, and Liberal supporters either agreed or strongly agreed that the Green and NDP should work together, and that such an agreement would up the number of competitive races from approximately 33, so that's the number of seats that the Greens and NDP combined could win, up to 108. And so, obviously, significantly improves the chances that some sort of ambitious climate uh, action could get done, and interesting, poli- interesting path forward in terms of the fact that we're sort of dealing with first past the post, trying to think outside the box in ways that you can sort of push uh, the government to do better. <laughs>
0: Way out in the Pacific Ocean, the Solar Observatory at the Mauna Loa Volcano in Hawaii, is an ideal place to study greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere, because it's far away from cities and industrial sites whose emissions could skew the measurements. We reached another milestone in human history just a few days ago, when on the 3rd of April, the Mauna Loa Observatory measured a daily average of 421.2 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. For around a million years before the birth of our fossil fuel-charged industrial society, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere never went above 300 parts per million. 350 is considered a relatively safe threshold for human beings. Thanks to the last 150 years of heavy fossil fuel use, The Earth reached 400 parts per million in 2012, we hit 415 in 2019, and now we have for the first time marked over 420. Our science tells us that uh, atmospheric CO2 concentration uh, was 7,000 parts per million when life began flourishing on Earth 500 million years ago, but there were of course no human beings at that time. The last time CO2 was over 415 parts per million, over 2.5 million years ago, Antarctica was covered in plants and sea levels were 10 to 20 meters higher than they are today. This is why it's feared that the climate crisis, as it has advanced thus far, is the Earth only just beginning to catch up to the real level of warming we have already sent into the system. Scientists, meanwhile, have determined yet again that human pollution is driving the current and coming climate crisis. Scientists had previously observed the globe growing warmer as greenhouse gas emissions rose, had proven the greenhouse gas effect, had developed global models that fit consistently with trends over the decades, and had directly observed the trapping of heat from greenhouse gases in local instances. And now, Researchers at NASA, for the first time, have provided direct observational evidence of the global phenomenon, which has surprised no one. This means that even though almost all scientists accepted the evidence before this finding, we have now caught the molecules red-handed, as it were, in the global sense. We've known that the surface temperatures of lakes have been on the rise for a while, but a new study in Nature Communications, published in March, is now showing that large lakes are warming even at their deepest depths. Scientists predict that the Great Lakes, for instance, could undergo what they call a regime shift by the end of the century. This means that there will be a radical change in the very structures of Great Lakes ecosystems by 2100 if the climate crisis continues unabated. A study published in Nature Climate Change on April Fool's Day has for the first time quantified the impact of human-fueled climate change on farming productivity. It is found that climate change has so far reduced global farming productivity by 21% since 1961. In Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, the reduction has been between 26 to 34%. Global farming productivity has of course been growing a whole bunch since the, since the 60s, but this shows how much climate change has has been slowing down that growth. The ways that agricultural productivity has grown, through industrialization and biotech, has of course also made climate change worse, and farming globally is becoming more vulnerable to the climate crisis as it unfolds. A study from late March, published in the journal Springer, is showing that if we were to hold industrial meat and dairy producers, to the same level of responsibility that the Paris Agreement has attempted to hold countries to, at least two producers would be responsible for cutting more emissions than the entirety of the country they operate from. Under this rubric, the study finds that Fonterra in New Zealand and Nestle in Switzerland would quote "...make up more than 100% of their headquarter country's total emissions target in the coming decade." The study also finds that big meat and dairy companies have relentlessly lobbied against climate action while very slowly making meager emissions pledges of their own. The World Bank, meanwhile, will apparently begin to align its investments with Paris Agreement efforts to curb global heating, but it will not promise to stop funding fossil fuels. This means that it is leaning towards eventually doing something, but it is not currently pledging to do anything remarkable. The World Bank is technically part of the United Nations, and it is the largest provider of climate finance to developing countries. A total of 188 countries lend money to the bank, and the United States controls the largest chunk of it. The nonprofit oversight project Bailout Watch has calculated that U.S. fossil fuel companies received $8.2 billion in tax bailouts from Trump's 2020 stimulus, but still cut almost 60,000 jobs that same year. 62 of these companies received an average of $131,000 for each person they laid off. Energy Transfer, the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline, is continuing its tactic of using its money and power to bleed its opponents dry. The Intercept reports that Energy Transfer has been going after Standing Rock tribal officials, legal collectives, and direct action groups to bury them in legal battles, and it has now subpoenaed the alternative news site Unicorn Riot. Energy Transfer is using the law... To try to force the site to give them everything they have on the company, including quote, "information about the nonprofit's organizational structure, social media accounts, and names of employees, volunteers and supporters." Over in California, the Department of Water Resources has been doing its annual April snow survey in the mountains to see how much water the state might have for the year. They have found that the statewide snowpack is only 59% of the yearly average for this season. This means that California is in a critically dry year. Officials are saying California must continue long-term efforts like recycling water, capturing stormwater, and planting water-friendly landscapes. Landslides and floods in East Timor and Indonesia associated with deforestation have killed at least 113 people over the past few days. A huge wastewater pond in Florida started to leak last week, and over 300 homes have been evacuated in the surrounding area.
2: If I was in charge, the Green New Deal would include padded rooms for people to go into and simply scream at the top of their lungs.
0: We need that right now with the COVID-19.
2: Yeah, we need it for everyone. Uh, Because that is what I feel is necessary when with these stories of these, like every time I hear about the new milestone atmospheric uh, carbon has hit um, or, you know, that California is even drier before fire season, it's as if we're simply being told of incoming suffering and it gets to feel relatively overwhelming now we are working on an upcoming series with a solutions journalism network which will begin to dive into some of what's happening on the ground and solutions and looking at people who are really leading the change but there's also a lot of sadness out there
0: is that actually coming through it is coming through
1: i mostly just wish that when the researchers at mauna loa had released new numbers for like us like going over a, a, a threshold for parts per million i kind of wish they'd picked a number other than 420 a because i feel like they've ruined 420 and b because i kind of can't take it seriously like I, like i take it seriously it's very very serious um just to make sure listeners remember, like we've been told, we were told like 20, 30 years ago that like 350 parts per million is technically the the safe upper limit to the amount of carbon dioxide that we can have in the atmosphere. Um, hence where the name 350 as in 350.org came from. Um, and all those cute little tattoos that people were getting a few years ago. But, um, but yeah, you can't tell me that we've hit 420 parts per million and not expect me to giggle about it,
0: so. Um, Are you gonna 420 blaze it in celebration of this threshold?
2: No, the threshold, the parts per million, or sorry, the carbon is just getting real high, Dave. Oh no.
1: There you go. See, oh. It's, oh, it's, a no. matter of, it's a matter of communications and it's something that we know we need to work on here in the climate movement is, is our communications. I'm just saying. Bad comms. <laughs> Maybe it's good comms because it got us talking about it.
0: I think it was Greta. I think she just runs everything now. Right. She was like, four twenty is a problem." I was like, "You're right, Greta. Thanks." Do we
1: do do we think Greta blazes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we a- we know that Greta blazes.
1: Greta's like a, Greta's like basically like nineteen. Now. Like Greta's an adult. Greta's yeah. allowed.
0: Oh yeah.
2: Greta's allowed to blaze and almost certainly
0: does. she's Swiss. That's all they do.
1: Good. For- she's Swedish. Oh shit different countries man also you're you're thinking of like amsterdam you're thinking (laughs) of the dutch
0: i just think all of like the
1: you can't equate all of your european countries where people have cute accents
0: all of the mythical social democracies that we always gesture towards are consuming marijuana
3: A desert grave Cry out Him there
4: That's Spartacus But you're going To Hart's
0: with the song, Undecided Voters. Thank you very much, Kiwi Jr. A new paper out of Simon Fraser University in BC is saying that Canada is going to lose $11.9 billion on the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline because its construction costs have more than doubled and because oil demand is going down. Critics of the study are arguing that Canada is going to sell the pipeline anyway, ideally to First Nations groups, and that oil demand has already almost returned to what it was before the pandemic began. Some Canadian climate people are pointing to Joe Biden's proposed $2 trillion infrastructure plan for the states and saying that Trudeau needs to do something like that. Biden's American Jobs Plan would spend $213 billion on energy-efficient affordable housing, $174 billion on electric vehicle transition, $100 billion on power grids, $85 billion on public transit, $35 billion on clean tech, $16 billion on hiring oil and gas union workers to clean up dead wells and mines, $10 billion on a civilian climate corps, make utilities acquire clean energy, and eliminate what fossil fuel subsidies he can. Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate to 28% to help pay for the investments, but this raising to 28% only brings the U.S. corporate tax rate halfway back to what it was before Trump slashed it by 14% in 2017. Biden is also calling this a -a once-in-a-generation investment, But this proposal will not fix the vice grip that ridiculously powerful corporations have fixed around American society. Biden's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is at least talking about creating an international minimum corporate tax rate so that corporations can no longer pit countries against each other to see who will lower their taxes the furthest and earn the graces of the corporation's presence. Progressives in the United States are saying... Meanwhile, that Biden's plan isn't good enough, is not spending nearly enough money to meet the problem at hand. And in Canada, if we just point to what Biden is doing and say that we want that, we will probably be pointing towards a happier continuation of neoliberalism, and any Canadian impetus for a generous, ecologically sound and fair society will not be very strong if we rely heavily for our power on the example of the United States.
2: I want to point out that if the Canadian government was going to try to do anything that would match something like this, they would have to invest $200 billion. I believe the last climate plan was $15 billion. So, a bit of a ways to go. It's a a level of ambition that we are absolutely nowhere near. Uh, And so while the plan is certainly not everything as it's about half to maybe a quarter as big as the Green New Deal proponents were hoping for, it still means that the Biden administration is far out ahead of our supposed climate champion prime minister. Secondly, the plan includes $80 billion for trains, outside of the $85 billion for public transit infrastructure, and honestly, I just like trains. So I'm excited about that fact. Uh, it's, and, and it's good, you know, you'll remember the conversation that we had uh, now maybe a month ago with Stay Grounded uh, from Germany, and this is exactly the kind of investment you need. Actually, you need a much bigger investment, but it's the beginning of investment you need to actually try to tackle air travel. Although I will also say it includes $25 billion for airports. So not all rosy here. Uh, but to me, the biggest takeaway is that this plan, while still being huge, is a trillion dollars smaller than what was being considered like two weeks ago. And interestingly, the plan that included the extra trillion dollar of spending, and I believe it also included some uh, ways to increase taxes on the wealthy, was actually more popular than this one is. Which seems to show, quite clearly, that people desperately want a government that actually does things. (laughs) And... Seem to also want a government that's committed to trying to solve the incredible income inequality that we've let run rampant for the last fifty years, but primarily do things. We need the government to do things.
1: Yeah, um, it's a bummer to hear right off the top that it's like like to compare Canada's um, investments in infrastructure to to the United States when when your point off the top was that it's like we're we're far and away below like. We're, We haven't achieved nearly as much as they have when it comes to investing because when I was reading up on this plan, like you said, $2 trillion sounds like a lot of money, but in actuality, it falls incredibly far short of where we need to be, especially if you're like, if if you're looking at it from a climate standpoint, I was uh, reading a a release put out by um, the Sunrise Movement and Something that they sort of put at the forefront of their of their comments were that in the last year of World War II, this is a quote, obviously, America put 40% of our GDP in one year on the war. That's the equivalent to nearly 8.5 trillion in 2021 alone. So when you consider that this is only two trillion dollars, and it could have been what did you what, what did you say, Stefan? Initially it was it was slated like, to be three. Yeah, literally like, like two weeks ago. That's that is Far and away, it, it's it's incredibly insufficient. What 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 Sunrises has come up with asking for is is Trent uh, is ten trillion dollars over the next decade, or one trillion dollars per year, being sort of like the minimum of what needs to be invested um, in infrastructure in order to overhaul uh, those systems to to build a climate safe future in the United States. So so yes, it's a positive that um, this proposal is sort of. Um, shares those sort of core tenants of a Green New Deal. And that's that's definitely a victory. And that can be pointed to as a positive thing that definitely only came about as a result of some like rockstar organizing that's happened in the States over the last several years and the good work of like political allies like Bernie and, and AOC, of course. Um, so the fact that those core tenants are there is really good. The fact that, that there does seem to be a general consensus, at least on the left and in the center, that these are the types of investments that need to be made or really positive. The fact that we're seeing so much investment in, in like sort of like human infrastructure within an infrastructure bill is, is obviously fantastic, but bottom line, when it comes down to it, it's, it's like five times, is it even five times it's, it's, it's not nearly enough. It's 1.9 trillion and it needs to be closer to 10 trillion. So yeah, that's, it's, that's where I'm at with it. It's of course, it's a good thing, but it's not nearly enough. So at least at least Biden does appear to be, you know what? No, actually, I don't want to compliment him further right now. That's that's where I'm leaving my comments today.
0: Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace.
2: As we mentioned earlier on the show, uh, we are about to jump into our first interview with our New York correspondent, Amir Jandali, who this week interviews Theo Hooker from Cambian Carbon on their work to support the creation of a more circular economy within urban wood. We join the conversation in progress. The first voice you hear will be Amir's. So take it away, Amir.
4: I'm really excited about how we all are different nodes in the system. And it's like, there's no single isolated issue, right? It gets all one big web of issues. And we all happen to find ourselves at different intervention points in the system. And and you, Theo, today are coming to us from Cambrian Carbon and your hashtags, your words are in uh, diverting lumber waste, creating new markets. And and that's distinct from other people that i talked to just in passing. So I'm, I'm excited to hear more from you. How would you describe what you do to someone who's never heard of you before?
3: Good question. I mean, in the realm of sustainability, we're using a would-be-waste product and finding the best use for that. That's the simplest terms. More broadly, like we are trying to reimagine the incentives around tree care and maintenance and removal so right now across the us millions of trees come down and a lot of those just go to landfill because it's easy to do and usually the cheapest option so basically you know we want to restructure how people think and value our trees and this really valuable natural resource that we have
4: okay so cambrium carbon is a system is a market is a service it is a community it is a blank
3: I'd say, yeah, E all of the above okay. basically, you're not in our work. So we we've been gotten some great support early on from the Arbor Day Foundation and the, T, the Nature Conservancy to explore uh, what we're doing, basically needs assessments with cities across the US. So right now we're working in New York City, Denver, Eugene, Oregon and Pittsburgh. Mm. And basically, this is a first step of understanding, you know, in the urban wood ecosystem, who are the players that are involved in each city? what's going on, what's worked, what hurdles and challenges are they working with now? And, and basically what we found is in every community across the country, you're going to have urban wood utilization. So people who are taking trees hmm. in the city, turning into, into some sort of project, product. The challenge is that those folks, to no fault of their own, you know, they're woodworkers and they love working with the wood. They're not, you know, politicians, they're not Salespeople, they're not marketers, they're not, you know, PR experts, things like that. And so we found this really big gap between the actual supply chain and kind of aggregating and establishing that consistent supply chain with a broader market. You know, people, when they find out about it, love the idea of mm-hmm. Urban Wood, they love the story, they love the local impact. They love the aesthetic and the look of it. The challenge is to make that more accessible to a wider audience. So fundamentally, you know, we were looking at this as a two-sided marketplace, connecting these mm. folks who may have some interaction right now, but are not utilizing that to the full full extent of the possibility.
4: Okay, so if you were to summarize the problem that you're solving, it sounds like it's multifaceted, but go ahead and spend a moment on that. What is the problem that you guys are solving?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The problem is, That this would be wasted resource, as with many wasted resources, is fragmented, disaggregated, and and has a lot of players in that system. So first and foremost, we are formalizing a way to best use that material and connect it to people who would actually use it.
4: And define the material.
3: Urban wood waste.
4: Okay. What is urban wood waste?
3: So you're looking out your window right now. Do you see any trees?
4: Uh, i do yes i see about seven
3: awesome so every year in cities across the u.s like those trees get routine maintenance from city parks crews to the forestry division of certain cities or contractors you know landscapers things like that some cases those trees have to be removed either from storm events or disease or natural causes where that wood goes is what we're talking about so urban wood waste is the journey after that tree comes down so whether that is taken to a landfill or turned into mulch for a local playground mm. or in some cases we found that there are burn piles so people cut those trees down mm. and just go and burn them because again simple and easy so urban wood waste wood that comes from urban areas after it's removed
4: okay And so when we talk about diverting wood waste, the first place that my mind went to was lumber yards or places that are producing large quantities of that Mm -hmm. you are now expanding what I'm how I'm relating to to wood waste, not as just from the lumber yards or the mills, but to something even that might happen in my neighborhood. And maybe for example, like pallets from, I guess, what does the spectrum of urban wood waste look like?
3: Great question. And I think there there are a number of different uh, categories there. So the example I gave of the tree outside your window, that's called what would we call fresh cut wood waste. Great. So a living tree comes down. What happens next? There are other opportunities or avenues like deconstruction wood waste. So with our work in Baltimore and the U.S. Forest Service, the city of Baltimore, a lot of local players have been working there around using the deconstruction of Baltimore row homes as an opportunity not only to recycle that wood that's been in there since gosh like over a century ago or, or you know something like that but also as an opportunity to create meaningful local jobs uh, in those communities as well so that that's like deconstruction wood waste is that another category and then that repurposing category pallets planks from shipping containers and things like that to, uh, to separate shipments those are that. That's another category as well.
4: Okay, and then so given those categories, how do you fit in?
3: So we are focused mainly on on the fresh cut side of things, and I think across the board, deconstruction or another word like reclaimed wood. You know, you might think of like uh, there there are a lot of companies now who work with almost like barn wood. Mm. They're like reclaiming old barn wood. Right. To make- you know, that's, that's sort of a, a product category now, or specifically in New York City. There's a lot of work being done around old water towers and repurposing the wood from those uh, to to tell the story to make beautiful pieces, things like that. But again, we're focused more on the fresh cut uh, side of things.
4: Okay, spend another moment on that. How how did you find yourself? as As we were talking at the beginning, you know, there's a whole system of interconnected issues. How did you find yourself in the fresh cut category? And what does that look like for you?
3: Yeah. the So it kind of started, one of our co-founders and CEO, Ben Christensen, he was working at the World Resources Institute on their carbon policy team and basically looking at, okay, what what needs to be true from a federal level to do what needs to be done to address climate change in the U.S. Mm. Within that, they, a lot of their research centered around natural climate solutions. So that's basically using these natural processes to combat climate change which, if done and explored to its potential, can alleviate up to or mitigate up to 20% of U.S. emissions right now. The challenge is that it receives about less than 1% of funding for development, research, and scale. So that's where they, they were circling in on. And within Natural Climate Solutions, that's everything from reforestation to sustainable agricultural practices to rangeland management, things like that. Reforestation was the biggest category by far. Within that, urban reforestation, was. there was a big gap there. And mainly mm-hmm. what we talked about earlier. Millions of trees come down out of cities, and cities spend several hundred million dollars each year actually paying to remove that waste. So cities pay for trees while they're alive, and then they pay for them to get removed and taken somewhere, and they don't actually realize the full value of this resource that we have. So that's where we, where we really kind of zeroed in and since, you know, over the past year and a half or so, really digging into that space and finding a real need, not only on the city side to help understand what to do with this wood, but also on the private side of folks who are, who are actively working with it, but struggling to connect it to larger markets and tell that full story.
4: Okay. Spend another moment on environmental impact here in terms of some numbers. I, I wrote down 20% of emissions, but received less than 1% of the funding. hmm expand on that a little bit. Help me color in the lines for you,
0: please.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, basically across the U.S., there's a a reforestation potential, right? So the amount of trees that could be planted in the U.S. is around 60 billion. And that's across 330 million acres that could reasonably mitigate around 180 metric tons of CO2. So those are a lot of numbers, big numbers that may not mean anything. But the real key, key point there is that Natural climate solutions, like planting a tree, from what we have found, is one of the most straightforward opportunities to mitigate climate change. It's not a silver bullet, certainly, sure. um, but it's a key way to do that. And you know what we're finding within the urban forestry system, so 46 million tons of tree, of wood, and merchantable wood, so like that has value, mm. comes out of cities each year across the US. And that, if every foot if every piece of that wood was utilized Mm. that would be a 29 billion dollar industry okay (laughs) and and then instead of that right instead of this value that's there it's actually costing cities 786 million dollars a year
4: okay if you're listening i have told that i have very expressive eyebrows and my eyebrows just went up several times (laughs) (laughs) as theo was, was was talking so of the fresh cut category of urban wood waste, there's 46 million
3: tons of what's called merchantable, timber.
4: merchantable timber. Oh my God. And that currently goes to landfill.
3: Right. And, and that, that's not sort of across the board. Everything hmm. goes to landfill. But I think the, you know, we've gotten questions of, you know, when we say gone to landfill, landfill turned into low value mulch, uh, or some cases burn, people are like, whoa, what do you have against mulch? You know, mulch is great. Well, mm. We have nothing against mulch. Mulch is fantastic. and has a lot of uses. The problem is that there is a lot of wood that could be utilized at a higher value, but then it's instead either mulched, sent to landfill, or something like
4: that. Got it. It's also just about stepping away from the normalcy of sending something to waste, like reappraising its value, and normalizing just repurposing across the board. So of merchantable wood, what do you do with it? And how do you, how are you now working in the system to get some of this fresh cut wood, find it new homes or work with people to turn it into stuff? Is that how it works?
3: Yeah. So, so quickly on that first point of calling attention to this practice of sending something to landfill, you know, when we trees give us so much, especially in urban areas and especially over the past year, when we've a lot of us have spent a lot of time inside that we are appreciating trees more and more but rarely you know especially before i got involved in this i didn't look at urban trees and, and wonder where they went and think about that life afterward right um, i think that the first part is sort of encouraging people to pause and look at this thing and this system and understand you know and, and question what what's really happening but to your second point of, of where what we do with that wood First is understanding its best use. So of all that, of that, that 46 million that comes down, certainly not all of it can be turned into, you know, high value furniture or things like that. So it's the separating into its best use. Part of that is, you know, furniture or other higher value items. Part of that is sort of mid-level stuff, like more commercial applications could be flooring, pant- like wall paneling, ceilings, outdoor benches, things like that. and then the lower volume or lower value potentially higher volume stuff again that can be mulch that can be turned into compost additives um, biochar which is a soil amendment and um, other things like that so we're really trying to see the full spectrum of uses and then connect each you know supply to its best use okay so in practice in each of these in the communities that we're working in connecting with local millers who are already actively working in the space so for example in new york city working with a number of local urban sawmills. So, you know, Trilox, Millworks is one option, uh, Reclaimed Brooklyn is another one, NYC Slab is another. But folks, again, on the ground, already working in this space and understanding what their inventory is, what are their challenges, and how can we amplify their work? Okay. Is it, a, is it connecting them with new projects? Is mm-hmm. helping them with some PR and communications around their work and understanding Basically, what are the gaps in the system that need to be filled and how can we plug in?
4: Okay. And that's from the diverting the waste standpoint. Correct. And you also have this, the yin to the yang, which is making sure new trees are planted. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Can you spend a moment on that?
3: Absolutely. So, you know, to complete this circular economy, that that's a key part of it. And so all revenues or a portion of revenues and profits from those sales then fund new local tree planting in those same communities. Okay. And you know, what we found basically in every major metropolitan area across the country, if you go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, our current levels of urban canopy cover, so the amount of trees that a city has varies based on neighborhoods, right? That makes sense. The challenge is that the lines of canopy cover, so a community that might have more canopy or more trees than another, typically fall on socioeconomic lines. And going back to the mid-1900s, typically fall on lines of communities that were redlined as well. So wanting to focus those tree planting efforts in communities that haven't, that have been typically left out of those conversations.
4: Okay. See, now you're just blowing this up into completely... New dimensions. That is, it's actually quite liberating and refreshing to hear you talk about this because we think that, again, to this theme, no issue is isolated, and the environmental crisis and the racial crisis are one and the same. And that's so. It's so illuminating to hear you say that. How do you communicate that, or what does your communication look like? Rather, let me ask you that.
3: So I guess the most helpful example would be to use one of our current uh, projects right mm-hmm, now in mm-hmm. Baltimore. Uh, so we're working with Towson University, a small, small university outside the city. They have a new student building coming in. We're getting them some urban tables, urban wood tables, some urban wood countertops for that building. Those proceeds will then help fund a planting project with the Baltimore Tree Trust, which is a local planting and workforce development organization in the city. Uh, and we actually have that scheduled for May uh, Fantastic. this year. And basically, you know, the Baltimore tree chest is, they obviously take care of the planting, but they're also very community-centered and tied in there to create the job pathway, pathways and trainings to create a viable employment stream out of, you know, in this system as well.
4: Okay, this is great. And you were actually, this was about to be my next question. Give me a story about how it all comes together. So you just started painting a picture for me. And as we round this off our conversation, which I don't wanna do, map this out for us mm-hmm. as, as best as you can, given there's no visual component here.
3: Absolutely. So yeah, let's let's just walk through that that project there and that kind of value chain. Mm-hmm. So in Baltimore, they're one of a, the more progressive cities in the US in terms of urban wood utilization. So that basically means the city has driven a lot of efforts to develop the urban wood program in the, in the city. So basically they have a a sort yard and milling center that's just outside the city. So logs, trees, everything that comes from the city can go there. And when I say everything, I don't mean everything. So they're getting a a percentage of that waste, but it's a start. It's a really great start. So wood comes there and it, uh, it it usually goes through a first processing. So that means, you know, you, you cut up the log into slabs. Then that wood is taken to, uh, our partners in Baltimore, our manufacturing partners in Baltimore, O&E Custom, they're the ones who are turning that raw wood into a beautiful table. And at, the, at Towson University, we're working with the design team there, the facilities department to coordinate their needs and timelines and sort of project management there. And then on the, obviously after the tables go in, then we're focusing with Baltimore Tree Trust. To plant those trees and some local, you know, news organizations and things like that to, to tell the message, to tell the story. And ideally, that's just the start. You know, we don't see a reason why every building in every city could not have a piece of urban wood in some way,
4: shape, or form. Urban fresh cut wood comes from the city. Mm-hmm. Go towards the sorting milling center that Baltimore has. Yep. And to to your point, it's something that they had they've had for a while and have championed this. And then from there, it gets cut into slabs or usable pieces where you have a partner in Baltimore called Odds and Ends Custom. And you take their output, which is a beautiful table. And then you go to Towson University and you say, hey, this is the supply chain. This is a system that we're working in. We can get you these awesome tables that are coming from urban waste. Here it is. And then you sort of broker this deal, I suppose, just kind of make sure you facilitate it and then there's some there's some financial return there that gets diverted into working with the Baltimore Tree Trust and then that then funds tree planting projects
3: yep
4: Absolutely. i love it and you basically are in a place now where you can repeat this system and this model across the country
3: yeah and, and I think that, you know, you're highlighting that that brokering pieces that again, we found this this big gap in the system that uh-huh. there are architecture firms there are designers who work with urban wood manufacturers already. You know, we're not we're not reinventing the wheel here, but there is a big gap in, you know, amplifying that use and message and what we're calling what we call this is like urban wood an unexpected climate solution mm. is that oh you wouldn't really think that something like this could have a big impact. But as you touched on at the beginning, there's so many interconnected pieces here that this, like a tree in a city, can create jobs. It can tell a beautiful story, connect people to their to their place in their community, and then on the back end, it can plant new trees. It can provide shade. It can you know clean our air. It can provide and all that stuff as well.
4: This is fantastic, Theo. I, I'm I'm loving it. To close us out, as you're finding your new your place in this system and your work continues to mature and evolve, what does it look like when it's normalized in the future? When this is not such a new thing that we're like, whoa, that's cool that uh, Theo and Cambium Carbon are working on this. When this is all normalized, what? Do you, how does that look? What does that look like to you?
3: Yeah, I think it's helpful to kind of go through that value chain again and, and see those changes. So mm-hmm. I guess first on the city side, that every city makes it, you know, either mandatory or, you know, really in, in incentivizes this reuse in some way mm. you know not just that someone has to remove a tree but that removal has to be put to its best use so that's sort of on the policy side of things there moving to the to the utilization and the actual buying you know making it much easier to access this wood so imagine if you know you're i remember last time we chatted you had you pulled up that beautiful slab mm. on your desk imagine if you could go to cambiumcarbon.com mm slash new york city and you could get a list of wood products sourced from new york processed by local millers and that you know help fund local tree planting and that's what we're building now and starting to roll out is our carbon smart wood alliance so folks who are committed to those three things and integrating urban wood into their system but basically making it exceptionally easy to make that happen one of the founders of Airbnb quoted is saying that they always wanted their website to be three clicks away from booking a room or making Mm -hmm. a reservation. Mm -hmm. We want you to be three clicks away from making unequivocally good product choices.
4: Brilliant. So that was Theo Hooker from Cambrium Carbon, the COO and co-founder. Thank you so much for this time.
1: All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.